Hello, this is Don McPherson, your host of 12 Geniuses. In season 11 of the podcast, we are exploring resilience, failure and forgiveness, leadership, belonging, and a variety of other topics that when done properly will help us perform our best. Today's topic is controversial. How many people can Earth support? Our guest, Dr. Christopher Tucker, is the chairman of the American Geographical Society and the author of the book, A Planet of Three Billion. The title of his book tips us off to what he believes global population should be by the end of the century. In our discussion, Dr. Tucker shares why the education and empowerment of young women and girls is the key to reducing global population to a more manageable carrying capacity. He talks about how we can avoid catastrophe by shrinking to abundance, how leaders should be thinking about global population and a future that may not be incented by growth, and he gives his very candid, critical assessment of people and countries that say we need to continue growing Earth's population. This episode of 12 Geniuses is brought to you by The Star Conspiracy. The Star Conspiracy is the B2B marketing agency for innovative brands creating the future of workplace solutions. For more information, head over to thestarconspiracy.com. Dr. Tucker, welcome to 12 Geniuses. Let's start with your background. Can you tell us who you are and what you have been studying over the last couple of decades? I actually started as a science and technology policy guy, but I lucked into a job at Columbia where I went as an undergrad, as a work-study kid, and I worked for the great Michael Crow. When I worked for Mike in the 90s, one of his creations was Columbia's Earth Institute, which is now known as Columbia's Climate School. And I happened to have the good fortune to attend uh, the inaugural lecture by Joel Cohen entitled, How Many People Can Our Support? I always thought that was like the most important question we should be asking ourselves since then. I just didn't really have a good answer. It turns out he didn't really have a good answer either. But I mean, I love the guy, but I didn't really, I love the question, didn't like his answer. And you have sought to answer that question, how many people can the planet handle? And you wrote a book called The Planet of Three Billion. What's the premise behind that? Once you recognize that kind of long ago, humanity plummeted our planet into kind of an advanced state of ecological overshoot, and that we've been accumulating enormous amounts of ecological debt that undermines our planet's ability to support us as a species, right? You start, that question's like, oh my God, what is the number? And, you know, so I struggled with it and out of it came, came, you know, this this book. And that's kind of roughly the premise, I guess. But all I was really trying to do at the time was, answer that question for myself. How did you arrive at 3 billion? What's the magic behind that number? My kind of intellectual progression as this kind of weird geospatial guy or, you know, geography guy is I want more geographically explicit kind of anchorings for your argument. And I really enjoyed the work of a gentleman by the name Paul Sutton at University of Denver. He's a guy who kind of works at the intersection of sustainability sciences, ecological economics and population geography or demography, if you want. And he wrote a great article called Paving the Planet. And he was focusing, uh, the subtitle was Impervious Surface as a Proxy Measure for Human Ecological Footprint. And, you know, when I looked at that, I was like, right, he's actually using satellite remote sensing over decades that can show the parts of the planet that have been deleted with cement and concrete and built environments, and then further burdened with other things. So he was coming up with proxy variables that could get down to below a square kilometer, right? And to me, you can start seeing where we are burdening the planet. It's not just like in general, humanity is burdening the planet. In general, uh, humanity is exceeding the carrying capacity of planet. So I find um, much more geographically explicit. And with the technologies we have, we can support these geographically explicit 
methodologies these days. But ultimately, ultimately, it really is about, you know, how have we burdened or deleted the ecoregions that kind of comprise our planet, right? And we could talk about ecoregions and the maps in the middle of my book uh, whenever you want. I would say based on the last 200, 250 years, maybe you would, you know, I think about the Industrial Revolution and that that's when it seems to have accelerated, at least from my perspective. Can you talk about those costs and consequences from this development, this incredible development over the last two centuries? Well, I think sometimes we conflate two things. One is population growth, right, which really took off, you know, let's say in the late 1700s. And there are a bunch of things like the public health revolution, medicine, agricultural revolutions that made calories more available to eat, made it less likely that you were just going to die. And so we started seeing population upticks then, but the human footprint wasn't actually that big then. Then later in the 1800s, you had this interesting phase shift, industrialization, if you will, but you had the physical chemistry revolution where suddenly, you know, we are creating uh, these hard metals and toxins that were useful industrially, but we started in in small ways kind of polluting the planet with that. And then, you know, starting with World War II and after that, that the the use of all those types of uh, that science and technology really burdened the planet quickly. So, you know, the, the consequences were, first of all, we made it so that humans were more likely to live, which I think is great. I think I think we call that progress, right? You're not going to die in childbirth. Your your children aren't going to die in childbirth. You're not just going to die at age 40. I think that's inherently good, but it was also the things that we brought with industrialization that helped us hasten the speed at which we deleted our planet, literally, like just chopping down entire ecosystems, paving them, changing waterfronts to industrialized waterfronts where they used to be sinks for carbon and nurseries for fish and things like that. And I'd say we really did it without understanding what nature was, what ecology was. I always like to point out that neoclassical economics and even Smith and Malthus, right, they started with no notion of nature. They, they predated the invention of nature as a concept. So it's taken us a long time to catch up with building nature and ecological kind of awareness into the systems that dr- have driven this massive industrial, the, this industrial kind of revolution and all the goodness that comes with it. So, I mean, there's tons of benefits associated with it that we could talk about, but the costs are, are absolutely massive. There's no better time to be alive if, if you're a human than right now. But that doesn't mean that we've been kind to the planet. We have been very, very unkind. It's at the expense of the planet. You're suggesting that we need to dial down global population to 3 billion by 2100. Is that right? So I guess what I'd say is my first goal is to avert catastrophe. And that becomes less about numbers and more about rates. So when we talk about total fertility rate, we've actually, I can show you the curve. It's in my TED talk, right? You know, from the middle of the 20th century, we've gone from like five or six uh, children per woman on average globally, right? All the way down to 2.3. And this year is probably going to be below 2.3. So we're, we've been dropping from five all the way to 2.3 and we're still doing this. And that's happened because of the empowerment of women and girls. Every geography where women are empowered, educated, integrated in the workforce and have access to family planning technologies, you're at replacement value or below. And it is really the places where women are not empowered, you are not educated, do not are not integrated into the workforce and do not have access to family planning technology that you still have runaway population growth. So my thing is we need to bend the curve as soon as possible. And every day after that, you're going to have more room on the planet. 
that allows our ecosystems to bounce back, to rewild, et cetera. The faster, the better, in my opinion, but you need to do it with social cohesion. You need to do it in a way that benefits uh, society and not just, you know, undermines our our economy and undermines our, our family unit and all the things we hold dear. Let's say about a century from now, we could be around 3 billion. But again, I don't think that total number matters as much as A, bending it before so we can avert catastrophe and then frankly, bring it down so that we can re- relieve the pressure we've been putting on the planet and restore the planet in a way that is buys down all of the ecological debt that we as a, as a species have accumulated at this alarming rate for centuries. Let's talk about China, because I think that's interesting. I think that'll kind of illuminate this for the listener. They're below 1.5, right? And have been for a, for a while. I, what I'm seeing is 1.45. And their population is set to shrink pretty dramatically. So they're at what 1.4 billion right now. What will they be at the end of the century? So there's actually been a lot of whispering that their numbers were high. So they still hadn't said, okay, now we have fewer people in China. And it was about that year, about two years ago, I guess, that they first announced that they are decreased by 600,000 that year. And so after that, there's good reason to believe it would accelerate and the number would be bigger. But one can imagine them losing somewhere between 600,000 and a million a year. Now you just do the math, right? That's 140 years that would have to go by with no course adjustment, no nothing, right? That somehow that fertility rate would would stand. And in my mind, right, they we need we need a generation or two uh, to kind of level set and recover and rebalance, and then we can discuss things for a generation. <laughs> well, before it were you know people like oh we'll have an empty planet, humanity will disappear. You go, no, humanity's not going to disappear. But this kind of century, hundred and fifty long uh, year long anomaly that we've been in you know, the dust may settle by then where we can have kind of a more rational, reasonable discussion. So you're saying that the number one thing that we need to do in order to get population in check is empower women, reduce this TFR, total fertility rate, down to 1.5. It seems to me, based on what I've seen, that we need to really focus on Africa. And I just got something in in my email this morning that said that Africa's population is set to double over the next 25 years to about 2.5 billion. The average age of an African is about 19 versus the U.S. and China median age being 38. And so doesn't it seem like focusing on Africa would be a great place to start? And that's a big thing. But what are your thoughts in terms of how we prioritize this? Yeah, to me, a high TFR country is a high TFR country, and I don't care where they are. But uh, but I, but Nigeria, for example, is a greater priority to me because of the the huge population than a population that might be 10, 10 million or something like that. No, that's absolutely true. But it, you can look at uh, Central South Asia and see similar numbers where the base numbers are enormous, and so if you're you know, at a fertility rate of 2.3, but you've got 1.4 billion, right? The numbers you're adding are epic. When if you're at, you know, 100 million and your uh, TFR is substantially higher than that. So I think, you know, it's it's a yes and scenario that we find ourselves in. Sub-Saharan Africa, absolutely. Um, you're, you're gonna, you have a youth bulge. And if you assume, which demographers do, if you assume everyone in that youth bulge will demonstrate the same fertility pattern 
as their parents did, which is a hugely bad assumption, then you will see these crazy numbers. There's a lot of good reason to believe that the TFR will bend faster. It'll still be positive. It'll still be high, but it'll bend much faster than demographers think. Demographers are an interesting bunch. Like They don't view their job as predicting. It's their job to extrapolate based on a set of assumptions. And oftentimes they'll say, well, it's you give me the assumptions. It's not my job to like figure out what the right assumptions are, you know? And, but I think in, in sub-Saharan Africa, and, and I'll say this for places in central Southern Asia also, is it's really not just about the numbers. It is about the consumption that the people are going to have. And the other dynamic happening in sub-Saharan Africa is you have people moving into the global middle class at an amazing rate. I mean, a lot of people, I think, who grew up in the 70s and 80s, you just think, oh, Africa's just poverty and and drought and famine and whatever, like go to Africa. It's kind of amazing, <laughs> you know, and, and you'll go to these places. And you're like, wow, they're down with the program. Like they're growing. This is real economic growth there. You know, you've got software development companies, you've got heavy industry, you've got, you know, shipping ports that are epic. I mean, and so the more concerning thing, or uh, I guess the additional concerning thing is not just how many more people there will be, but that so many of them move into the gold middle class and their consumption patterns will look a lot like ours in the first world. We are particularly profligate, right? Like right now we consume 10 to 30 times what somebody in the developing world does. But that number is so bad because people in developing world consume as little as they do. As soon as they start consuming more, our percentage will be bad. It'll be more like we consume five to 10 times more than they do and we should consume less uh, or be more light footed on our planet, if you will. But the, the explosion into the global middle class will crush the planet. And, you know, my thing is we have to bend many curves simultaneously, not just population. As I've been embarking on this project of 12 geniuses and interviewing all these people and examining trends and thinking about climate change and thinking about population growth, I always thought that we would be able to engineer our way out of any problem and that does not seem like it's the case. So why can't we engineer engineer our way out of this? So I've always been a technological optimist, but if you read my book, you'll find that my assessment of the long-term ecological carrying capacity of our planet, that, that 3 billion estimate, actually assumes an enormous amount of innovation. I'm, I'm not assuming that our, you know, the economist production function will remain stable. I only think we can achieve 3 billion and not like collapse under our own weight if we engage an enormous amount of innovation. I mean, look, we've got ocean garbage gyres that dominate like five oceans, you know, filled with plastics. We've got these PFAS, forever chemicals, endocrine disruptors everywhere. We've got atmospheric carbon at levels that we, you know, humanity's never seen. Ocean dead zones, hundreds of them where there's insufficient oxygen for sea life to exist. That's just stuff we have to clean up. And the amount of innovation to pull that off is just, Epic, right? We also have to change what we do. Yeah, you know, forget about the ecological debt that we've accumulated, right? We've got to engage in innovation for the energy transition. We've got to kind of make all these massive cities that we built, right? By 2050, 75% of the world's population will be in cities. We have to make those cities sustainable. And some are kind of, you know, the rich ones that have a lot of resources, but many of our cities. They are not green. They are not sustainable. They'll end up being ecological scourges themselves if not for a bunch of innovation. And, you know, beyond that, we we have to help our planet bounce back, right? There's a bunch of things, innovative things. It's going to take a bunch of science and a bunch of technology in order to rewild. Like, you know, we just got rid of Bolsonaro. And like now we're looking at the Amazon going, how does one bounce that back? Right. It's not just, oh, just, you know, pull the tractors out and we'll be fine. 
It's going to take a huge amount of innovation to pull that off. So my three billion assumes an enormous amount of innovation. And, you know, this is in the face of, remember, we continue to add 80 million people to the planet while we're like, oh, we'll innovate, innovate our way out of this. You go, yeah, but you know what we did last year? We added 10 New York cities or one Germany to the planet. You know what we're going to do this year? 10 New York cities or one Germany to the planet. You know what we're going to do next year? 10 New York cities or one Germany to the planet. And we keep doing that. You know, it's like amnesia somehow. If we don't innovate, we're definitely screwed. But even if we innovate, yeah, the number is about 3 billion. And, you know, our friends in the global middle class or in, in the developing world will also be joining the global middle class, which is what we want them to do, right? We want them to all be have well-being and prosperity and be part of kind of the global thing, but it will crush the planet. And we just need to start thinking about like what knobs to turn and what flip uh, switches to flip uh, because we need to bend, again, several curves simultaneously, including the demographic curve while we use science and technology to help us invert some pretty bleak, catastrophic circumstances. What are the key incentives needed to change the behavior necessary to solve this problem? Yeah, I mean, as I say in my TED Talk, as I've said here, uh, you know, I believe that if we simply invested the same amount in women and girls, right, their well-being, their education, their empowerment, their integration of the workforce, their access to family planning technologies, if we invested the same amount in them worldwide as we invest in one major weapon system in the United States, like the Joint Strike Fighter, $12.5 billion a year we put into that baby, it would quickly hasten the inevitable demographic transition worldwide. And I'm not saying don't buy the Joint Strike Fighter, though I can give you my commentary on the Joint Strike Fighter as a weapon system. You know, we find when we need $12.5 billion, we find it all the time. We found it for Ukraine and the couch cushions, you know, every month or so when we need to put money out. We've just chosen not uh, to do that, frankly, because we've got institutions that are committed to coercive pronatalism, whether they're political institutions or religious institutions or economic institutions that just want women to have babies so that we can have more workers in the future. You know, there's so much institutional coercive pronatalism that, you know, if we just invested a little bit more in women, I think you'd be shocked at what the impact would be. So you think just 12.5 billion would solve the problem in terms of investing in women and young girls? I'll calibrate after I see that kind of money put in. Right now, if you look at USAID's global family planning budget, right, on a good year under one party, it may be 700 million, maybe a little bit higher. Under another party, it gets zeroed out. Not to be partisan, it's just kind of an observation about 700 million? Million? Million. Million. It's like a joke, right? It's like a bad joke. Because every time we need something for real in the United States, it's like 100 billion for this, 100 billion for that. And I'm talking about such a minor turn of a dial that could have unbelievably positive impacts for climate, unbelievably positive impacts for human ecology, for, God, all sorts of things that face us as as a future society. It's such a tiny turn of a tiny knob that we can't seem to muster the political will to go do. But honestly, I think a lot of it beyond out of bias, just weird bias, is also just complete and utter ignorance about the facts. What if we don't significantly reduce the population? Are we headed for another mass extinction? Well, you know, there was a great article interviewing Bill Reese. I mentioned him. He's the leading ecological economist, older guy, curmudgeon. I think he'll self-identify as a curmudgeon. And actually, there's like everything in the article, I kind of agreed with the facts, but I disagreed with the premise. You know, it's like we will have a massive, uh, just like any other species, right? If you exceed the carrying capacity of your ecosystem, you have a collapse. And I'm like, well, that's 
A, not the way to sell it, but that is certainly the thing to avert. And I do believe uh, that if we keep growing, you know, to nine and a half, 10, your probability and scale and frequency of events that can lead to human misery and death and and whatever will all increase, right? The kinds of numbers like we freaked out when Syria, you know, had its internal, it still has its internal issues and 5 million people left for Europe and 5 million people were internally displaced. And the whole international community is beside itself. Like, oh my God, how do we deal with this? 10 million people, this is beyond it. We're talking about 1.3 billion climate refugees with sea level rise, right? Entire island nations gone, right? And we don't have enough boats and airplanes to even pull that baby off. And can you imagine what CBS, ABC, CNN, what they're going to say when it's 1.3 billion instead of 10 million? And I just think people are living in magical thinking zone um, because they're not good at math. You know, these are multiple order of magnitude differences and the kind of scale that humanity has to operate at to, to just address each one of those discontinuous kind of change, you know, punctuated equilibrium, whatever, whatever term you want to use, it's going to be tough. What advice do you have for business and government leaders who are interested in protecting their organizations? How should they be processing this information? They need to stop falling victim to this baby bust alarmism narrative that you'll see coming out of, frankly, reporters, financial reporters that were mediocre macroeconomic students back in the day when nobody even talked about any of this finite planet stuff or, or demographics. And all they can think is, you know, if it's not growth, it's a recession. You go, well, that's those are literally policy terms that we put on the books under certain assumptions since World War II. I think that there's tons of money to be made and wealth to be had in a world that's increasingly smaller. You've got countries that are doing quite well, even though they are decreasing in size. I mean, go there. They're, they're nice places. Do they have macroeconomic issues they need to deal with? Yes. Do they have challenges to public finance that they need to rethink? Absolutely. Right. But they're operating under false premises, right? That everything should continuously grow forever. And you'll, you'll read like, you know, articles about China or Japan or whatever. And it's clearly written by people who have an assumption that if I don't have continuous 8% growth in a country like that, it's bad. And you go, but they're losing 600,000 people a year. Why should you assume 8% growth in their economy? The guy just sits there and goes, huh? You know, because they're just, they just either don't want to know, it's either willful ignorance or they have absolutely no clue about the demographic realities that we we live in. As my friend Nanda de Bajaj, she uses the term shrink to abundance. And it's almost like that's a brain twister. And I think we need to start thinking about, you know, shrinking to abundance. I believe that we live in a world of abundance. You know, it's certainly the world you live in is abundant, the world I live in is abundant. It's not equally distributed. Obviously, we know that. But we're able to create a lot of awesome stuff and, you know, food that was unimaginable 200 years ago. But my, my point is, and I think you were kind of alluding to this, is we're using GDP as, as a metric and that's the be all end all. But we haven't cracked the code on happiness. Maybe it's time to shift gears and, and focus our attention there. Yeah. And frankly, I think we've got a bunch of billionaires who are super angry and unhappy who are like going to destroy the planet. So clearly like them taking their piece of like the, of the global GDP doesn't seem to make them any happier. I mean, some of them seem to be some of the most hateful, like horrible people ever. And maybe not. Maybe they're great people and it just comes off that way. 
But yeah, happiness and and growth are not necessarily aligned. And that's where I always like to focus on prosperity and well-being, right? If we reimagine economics for era of degrowth, what are the public finance mechanisms? What are the policies that shape capital markets? Because they do, right? There's no such thing as a capital market sans policy. There never has been, there never will be. So there's all these things that we can do to really target well-being. And there are actually indices out there that people have developed, the human development index and all these things, where we can start tracking these things. Are they perfect? No, but they're so much better than GDP. And I mean, I love guys like Joe Stiglitz, right? Nobel Prize winner, former head of the World Bank. You know, you know, he's he he's abandoned GDP. He's like, this isn't helpful at all. And when economists, when big name economists are doing it, I think all of us should just be like, Maybe maybe the mediocre kind of macroeconomic worldview that we're getting on financial TV channels fed to us are just wrong, and we need to get over it. I want to ask you about the nation state, because it's the way that we govern right now. It's not the way that we've always governed. Throughout history, actually, the nation state is pretty a pre- pretty recent phenomenon. It seems to me that in order to solve this problem, climate change, a lot of the problems that the world faces right now, we need a level of government above the nation state. And I wonder if you agree with that. We just don't have strong global government systems in place to address these things. That's that's at least my opinion. I wonder if you agree. Yeah. I mean, it's like, can better government, can stronger government do something? I, I always like the distinguishing can and could, and particularly when people talk about engineers, with my engineers at my various companies, I'll say like, hey, can we do X? That's a poorly phrased, inexact use of the English language. That, uh, can we do X? And they go, yeah, we can do that. I go, cool. Can you show it to me? And they go, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I mean, it's not working now, but if you gave us a bunch of money and a bunch of time, we can totally do that. And they go, oh, that's could, not can. And they go, huh? Yeah. So, I mean, we could do it. But they, they really don't want to say, I can't do it. Like in their mind, that's failure. And I think that's when you asked about engineers, can you, you know, but governments are kind of the same way. Like, can we do this? And they go, oh, sure we can. And a lot of in governments, bureaucrats, are really, there's a lot of, if you were to take kind of the same DNA or intellectual DNA, there's a high Venn diagram overlap with engineering worldviews, bureaucrats and engineers, right? We can do that. And you go, yeah, no, you can't. You could maybe, but you haven't proven it out. So in terms of stronger global government, and that's maybe a commentary on on national governments and state and local, but like stronger global government system, I don't know. I'm not sure about that. I, I think our international institutions need to stop lying to themselves and all of humanity about the ways in which demographics and our planet's fate are linked. I think you find a lot of silence, institutional silence. Sometimes I call it a gag order, but like who who wrote the gag order and what's the punishment? But you find this amazing, a lot of noise about this and utter silence about that, you know? So I, I think I could talk for hours about the failures of the United Nations, really in terms of its like worldview and intellectual dishonesty on, on important issues. And I'm more inclined to do that than saying they're not they're not being strong enough or they're not strong enough, right? I'm, I'm always about effective government, not bigger government. Sometimes an agency could have bigger budgets and more authority. Other times, you know, an agency you know, should really see its staff shrink in the face of automation, right? Like I want a smaller agency and have computers run it, depending on what the mission is. And sometimes another agency should really, you know, needs to be reinvented. Maybe, to, you know, people say, I'm going to eliminate that agency. And I find that kind of an anti-statist, 
not productive conversation and go, what's the mission and what public bureaucracy do we need to succeed? So I'm always amazed at kind of the lack of nuance that we have in discussion around public sector. Like, do we need stronger government, better government, whatever? But I do think we do need to stop tolerating kind of such a simplistic dialogue when we discuss our public sector of things where we would never tolerate that in the boardroom. Yeah, in the private sector, it's about like, let's walk about the real things to make real money and service real customers. And and I feel like sometimes it's whiplash between the simplistic discussions we have around the public sector and the private sector. So I don't know that it needs to be stronger, but sometimes you just need to have an honest dialogue. And then I, I don't think we've been, ha- I know for a fact we haven't been having for decades around issues of demography and kind of the fate of the planet. So what are the people of 2073 going to look back at it, at what we're doing now and just shake their heads at in disbelief? Nearly everything. Uh, That's my answer. I mean, I, yeah, I mean, I always talk about like the 20th century. I'm like, people are going to look back and consider it just tragically misguided. And it's hard for me to tell somebody like my dad that though he's, my dad's a curmudgeon. So he spent most of the 20th century and 21st century complaining about how jacked up the world is. So like, you wouldn't think it's, it would be that much of a leap for him to be like, yeah, you know, all the decisions we made were just completely messed up. I think they'll laugh at how slow our energy transition away from fossil fuels was. You know, like what took you so long and how blind the public was to blatant corporate manipulation of public discourse with misinformation, disinformation. I think there's going to be so many documentaries, class action lawsuits. It'll be like smoking, you know, like, (laughs) you know, like, why does that take so long? Of course, they just came back and sold us e-cigarettes. So I think, you know, that, that people will look back and be like, what the hell? I think they'll they'll look at kind of how we let technology run amok with kind of shock and disgust. I think there's plenty of document documentation and documentaries about technology run amok in the 20th century. And I think there's a little more awareness of it now, but I think by the late 20th century, uh, 21st century, people will just look back at our willingness to like let technology get out in front with no public discourse, no regulation, and just always let a generation of harm occur before we ever dial it back in. And it's just a repeated pattern. We do it all the time. It's like, don't regulate technology, bro. Like it does great things. I'm like, dude, I can give you example after example after example. How have we just been a little bit smarter and uh, you know had just a little bit of intestinal fortitude? We could have saved so many lives and made the world so much better place. I think they'll shake their heads at kind of the false choices that were posed in discussions of demographics versus women's rights. Uh, in sexual reproductive health. Like, don't tell women how many babies they're supposed to have. And it's like, whoa, 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 no, we're we're not doing that, right? We are asking people to understand the demographic numbers and investment in women and girls. And it's a false distinction that weirdly, conservatives and liberals, it's like, it's not a left-right thing. It's like a a top-bottom thing, I don't know, where you'll have liberals and conservatives up here and liberals and conservatives up here of different stripes who just disagree on how we should be dealing with this. But the big thing is, are we going to have an honest discussion about demography and people's rights? Is it uh, focused on just what I get to do because I'm going to get mine because everybody else got theirs? Or are we focused on giving future generations of children a fair start in life? Or are we going to just you know, have children and hand them into a world with ever-diminishing ecological resources, knowing it, knowing it, like, yeah, it's going to be worse for them than it was for me, but let's have five of them, you know? I think that they're going to view, let's see, I I think, honestly, I think they're going to look back at philosophies. I mean, maybe I'll lose half my viewers here. 
You know, I think they're going to look back at philosophies of guys like Musk and Andreessen, these kind of so-called effective altruists and effective accelerationists as a kind of billionaire induced delirium. You know, like they, they, they own the microphone, so they get to say whatever they want and they get to sell us a philosophy that really only works for them. And yeah, they want to put trillions of people on, you know, planets outside of our solar system and they're going to need how many SpaceX rockets to go do it. Cool. Works for you, bro. And, you know, I'm not sure what companies Andreessen's invested in that he needs more people probably to get his SaaS revenue numbers up before the next ITO, you know, but I, I just consider it deeply cynical, but kind of this weird nexus between the effective altruists and the effective accelerationists where it's all bankrolled by a, a few billionaires that want us to, and they just ignore all the facts around demography. I mean, I, you know, Elon Musk couldn't handle three minutes in the ring with any of the people that I deal with on issues of demography. But yet he just gave $10 million to UT Austin to fund their, you know, their center on population research. Why? Because he wants, he's telling everybody we should have more kids and that we're facing population collapse is the biggest challenge we have in the next 20 years. It's like, bro, you know, it's just maddening. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that was one of the things that I've been thinking about is he's an advocate for greater population. And, and there are other countries, too, who are incenting it or that are incenting it. Hungary being one. I think South Korea is as well. <clears throat> and and I think it's come up occasionally here in the U.S. that we need to address population. Yeah, I mean, I, I will say just a shout out to one of one of my friends, colleagues. I met her on this kind of journey I've been on, Nanda de Bajaj. Uh, B-A-J-A-J, and Google her and read everything she has around coercive pronatalism. And she has just done such a great job reframing everything where it's like, for years, it's like, you know, coercion was telling women they can't have babies. Meanwhile, as many of them as possible are trying to get access to family planning technologies, but we're like, you know, having this whole discussion, but that could be coercion, be careful. And she goes, what about institutional coercive pronatalism? you know, or coercive, I mean, put the accent on the right syllable here, coercive pronatalism, not coercive antinatalism, because we have many, many institutions that are just trying to make people feel uncomfortable until they have a certain number of kids. And you've seen the waning of many of those institutions in the developing world, I'm sorry, in the developed world, uh, where it's like, look, you know, oh, ladies, uh, gentlemen, you can have as many kids as you want. If you choose not to have any, that's fine. But I will say, you know, places like Korea, those are a different case than Victor Orban, right? Victor Orban is a, I mean, I'll just say he's a horrible human being. Um, he's a nativist, racist, anti-immigrant kind of guy that wants more white Hungarian women to have more white kids. And he wants to build a fence to make sure that they're culturally pure. That's one guy. South Korea is one of many countries, Taiwan, Japan, Thailand, that experienced an amazing demographic transition, which gave them the path to health and wealth. And they were ahead of the curve. And their transition from a TFR of six, they're now at 0.7, which is amazing. But it's a small, crowded country. And I think there's a lot of things going on there that make people say, you know, maybe, maybe we'll just chill on the procreation thing for a little while. But who is it that complains? The macroeconomists, like the institutions are like, I need more kids to be consumers and laborers, right? That's the job of your womb. And, and every country has their coercive pronatalist kind of elements 
And they probably don't like to think of themselves that way. They've just bought into this kind of old school growth macroeconomic model, and they don't understand that there are alternatives. So I think there's a lot of well-meaning people in some of these countries that are just kind of caught up in this, you know, know, pro-natalist, frankly, coercive pro-natalist project because they've been told since school, like the, the most important thing is adding more laborers to the workforce and more consumers to the economy. And and they just don't know that that there's another way. And I always say, have you been to South Korea? Pretty nice place. And like, what are you thinking? But I also think people people think things never change. Like I would say they need to change for a couple of generations. So we can a few generations so we can kind of right size the thing. You know, we got a bunch of people on the ship and you're going you want to add more people to the ship, to the boat, frankly, the dinghy before we enter high seas in a big storm. And I'd argue like when you're in a dinghy and you're going to go into ICs in a big storm, maybe you don't want more people in it. So that's kind of the way I view at least the next few generations. And then there's plenty of time to resize things, you know, so that a century from now, you know, we're hanging out roughly at 1950s population levels. Well, this has been a phenomenal conversation. Dr. Tucker, thank you for your time and thank you for being a genius. Thank you for listening to 12 Geniuses and thanks to the Star Conspiracy for sponsoring this week's show. We will return next week with a conversation about artificial intelligence with Charlotta Siegman. Charlotta is a founding member of the Center for AI Risk and Impacts and an economics PhD candidate at MIT. Charlotta and I talk about the true dangers of AI, how it can benefit humanity, ideas for how AI should be regulated, and how the decisions we make today have the potential to affect many generations to come. Thank you to Richard Jocelyn for producing this show. To subscribe to 12 Geniuses, please go to 12geniuses.com. Thanks for listening, and thank you for being a genius.